Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 9. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil, good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? You can uh, open to Genesis. Uh, we'll be in the kind of scattering around the first three chapters tonight. Um, Last week, we began a a five-week series on uh, men and women in God's story. Um, If you did not not hear last week, I encourage you to go online and and listen to it, because what we did last week is very foundational for where we go the rest of the weeks. Um, All five weeks together uh, will make one whole, at least somewhat of a whole, and so... um, it's, it's important that we get them in sequence because they build on each other and the things from each week speak into the things um, of the week to follow. Um, as I said at some preliminary comments last week, I laid out the, uh, the approach to scripture that we take here at the vineyard, and then we jumped into the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2. Um, and so, uh, if you, uh, like I said, if, uh, a little short review of that, um, we'll do that and then I'll walk um, into these next sections today. Um, but I encourage you to listen online if you missed, uh, missed last week. By way of reminder, there are some little cards by the um, table there as well as in the back that have that picture on one side. It's blank on the other side. If in any course during this time you've got some questions, um, you write your question on there um, and then stick it in the offering box and um, I will attempt to answer that the, um, the following week as we go through that. So by way of a review from last week, we first started, uh, Genesis gives us a picture of God, and we discovered some things about him. He's our creator, he's sovereign, um, he has designed us um, to thrive, but that requires embracing God's ways, his design, even his regulations. And so if we want to make sense of life, the very first chapter of Genesis lets us know that it begins with God, and it begins with what he says. And then secondly, we began looking at, so what do we discover about men and women? And a few things that came out last week, both are created in the image of God. Both are made of the same substance and are counterparts of one another. They're male and female, um, and that is essential to displaying God's image to the world. Um, and we'll look at that a little bit more this, tonight, but um, male and female together whether married or single, we talked about that, must work together in order to fully display the image of God. Uh, any 
biblical description of gender relationships or roles, which is what we're doing for these weeks, um, that does not recognize the equal need for both male and female in unity together to image God's likeness in the world is a distortion of his design. So that's kind of where we went last week as we walked through that. Um, and then they are both given the creation mandate to steward creation. Um, the, the creation mandate is be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the garden. Interesting, uh, Jesus uh, also gives us a mandate, doesn't he? Um, he told the disciples what? Go. The gospel mandate, the great commission to go and, and make disciples. And just like in the garden, the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, as well as to cultivate the garden is a shared mandate that he's designed for men and women together to carry out and fulfill. So also the, the mandate that Christ has given to us um, requires that both men and women equally um, serve in unity in order to fulfill it. Um, Jen Wilkins, uh, she's part of a church in, in, uh, the, uh, in Texas. She says this, the contributions of women in the advancement of the kingdom, and she uses the word, are essential and they're indispensable. The kingdom does not advance without their contributions. Obviously, it's both men and women, but emphasizing the fact what gets missed so often um, are the contributions of women. Scriptures say that we um, all believers, right? We are his workmanship, each of us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance for all of us um, to do. Um, And those are God's words that are spoken um, for each of us that know him. So we've seen um, that what they have in common. Um, in the beginning here, they're just called man and the woman. We, we know them as Adam and Eve later on, but we've seen what they have in common, how they are the same, and that they're both invited into God's mission as equal contributors. But they're also distinct from each other. In Genesis 2.23, when it, when it says that um, the man um, first speaks to uh, God who the woman who God has created, um, the word for man in that section, Genesis 2.23, is ish, not ish, but ish. Um, and the, the word for woman is isha, which is a woman, right? So, but it's interesting that they are alike. Even the words are similar, but they're also distinct. There's, you've got these two different words there. So today, uh, what we want to do is look at the ways that they are distinct um, in the book of Genesis, specifically in these first three chapters of Genesis and as, as we do so, remember what is distinct or different is just as necessary, indispensable to God's working as what is the same. So God uses both the things that are the same about us um, as men and women, but also the things that are distinct to advance um, his kingdom. So what are their distinct contributions? And we'll see, we'll see basically um, walk through that tonight. So what are their distinct contributions? Number one, and we looked at this last week, they are distinct in their sexuality. So that's obvious, male and female. God creates two here. We saw first that they are different in that they are created male and female. They're not interchangeable. We, we looked at uh, last week a little bit that um, who we are in our sexuality is, is a part of um, It's uh, part of our identity. Um, we, we play out of those places. The difference, of course, is more than physiology, although that's obviously part of the difference. Um, 
I think we can agree that there's, although there's no absolutes, um, whenever people tell, like saying this is what men are like and this is what women are like, everybody laughs, right? Because they're always true. Um, and like I said, they're not absolutes, but there are, I think we'd agree, agree as a general rule that men and women, um, we operate differently in the world. Um, we see things differently. Um, it's the way God made us. Men and women see the world from different perspectives. Being male or female impacts the way we embody our world. And God desires that both perspectives come into play in all that we do. Um, it, it just, we see things differently. Um, it's part of the challenge of relationships, isn't it? Um, and, but yet God weaved that into his very creation for a purpose. So I think that, um, as I said, God desires that both perspectives come into play in all that we do. And I think we'd agree that the church needs to find ways to do that that are in keeping with God's word. Um, being male and female is by God's perfect design. And he has also designed how those God-ordained differences are meant to work together to carry out his mission. So God, the first distinction here is they're created male and female, and there is a purpose for that. Part of the way God carries out his mission. Secondly, they have distinct contributions. So um, they're distinct in their they're male and female, but they're also distinct in that they have distinct, um, what I want to call contributions. And I'm a little tied to my notes tonight, so I hope that's okay. I'm just um, got stuff here to make sure I make it clear. Um, God designed the man and the woman to each bring a unique contribution right from the very beginning, to, to, to God's mission. So he gives him a mandate, but he makes them different and distinct, and they each bring a distinct, different contribution into the, into the mission. We often refer to that as having two different roles, different roles. I don't really think it's the best word. Um, they're, they're God-ordained um, differences here, and this are, are, are less roles. Roles are usually something we do, which is part of it, but really the, the distinct contributions really have to do with relationship. They really have to do with relationship. And so I like to think of it as, what's their contribution? And men have a, um, we have a bunch of shared contributions that we all do that are the same, but we also have some distinct contributions as men or as women. And as we outline these differences, don't forget what they share in common. The particular contributions that we outline here and that we'll see as we go through the next couple weeks um, are not all that men and women do but we're highlighting what they do uniquely, if, if that makes sense, and what they need to faithfully live out. So the first one will go, um, we'll begin with the woman as God creates her and what is her distinct contribution. And the Genesis account tells us very clearly what it is. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We read this last week. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And he says, I will make him, and depends on your translation, um, the ESV says a helper fit for him. Um, he makes um, the woman for a specific purpose or something there that God intended to do, a contribution she was to make. The word translated helper is uh, Azar or Ezar, um, and it's modified by this other phrase being fit for him. Um, it's better under, it's, uh, fit for him isn't the best word, it's, 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 uh, it's a helper that corresponds to him, or that um, some translations actually say it means like opposite. It's, it's a helper 
that is like opposite him. It's like him, but it's opposite him. It brings something that he doesn't have. The helper, the word, um, remember last week actually we talked about that there, Adam and uh, the man and woman are, are alike, but they're distinct and different. It's like two different puzzle pieces that come together. And so it's this idea of like opposite, something that makes them complete. Uh, the word helper, again, is not the, the greatest word, but it's actually the, it is the correct translation. Um, we think of helper as, um, helper is often seems as something that's not necessary, right? It's like, I can do this, but having a helper is a nice thing to have. But that's not the idea here. It's not the idea of an assistant. It's, it's not like uh, a, a sidekick. It's not like Robin the Batman or something. I never know what Robin did. He never did anything in the, the old show. Um, it's not this idea of, um, I've even heard people describe, well, that's just, this, this view just looks at, that's the woman is mommy's little helper kind of idea. That is not the picture here at all. It's not. It's the one who helps makes up all that is lacking. Adam didn't have everything he needed. It makes up all that is lacking. And as such, this helper um, is an indispensable component in your relationship. Interesting, in the Old Testament, it's primarily used of who? Anybody know that? It's primarily used of God. The word helper is primarily used of God himself. And it's also a military word, like, like military help that comes in that if it didn't come, the battle would be lost. So Psalm 3320, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our, use the same word, he's our helper, our shield. Exodus 18, verse 4 says, The, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me. It's the exact same word. Psalm 115, 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Deuteronomy 33:26 says, There is none like God who rides on the heavens to your help. Same word, it's the picture. And, and what is the Holy Spirit called, by the way, in the New Testament? It comes along, it's, a, it's, it's our helper. Um, without which, actually, it is impossible to live the Christian life. So God himself, when we use the word helper, calls himself that. And he comes alongside us to serve and support and to empower, and yet he never ceases to be God. He doesn't become less than that. He's still the sovereign God. He provides, as he does the woman here, what is lacking so that the one he is helping can complete the task. Does it make sense? It's, it's, uh, so our, our word help, it just doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. But that's, that's the idea. This is, this is like if God is not there, we are lost kind of idea because God comes along to bring that help, and that's the way the word is used here. So with the creation of the woman as helper, we get the first formation of what we call community. And it's absolutely necessary to have both the man and the woman as this, what's called helper here, to fulfilling God's mission. Interesting, the, um, the, the Hebrew word for helper um, sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word for seed. It's interesting that God talks about, some people think that it was a kind of a play on words that um, gets used here in Genesis because, and, and later on we're told that it's the seed of the woman, right? It's, it's her that's going to bring the one who redeems us. It anticipates the redeemer who comes to help, the rescue that comes through the creation of the woman. So there, there's a difference between the man and the woman. And we're told here in this section that she 
is the helper, the azer. The, the woman is made and she contributes that. Comes along as the way, as the same manner that God comes along to bring help for us. So there's a, it doesn't say that, by the way, we should all help each other, right? We all come alongside, but distinctly in Genesis, God says that is what she was created for. This is, this is what she does. This is what she brings uniquely into the picture. And it's absolutely essential, or we were lost here. Second of all, how is the man distinct? Um, he's also given a distinct contribution to make, um, and it comes before the fall. Um, and here's what it is. The man is given, and I'll, we'll walk through this and see where, how this shows up. The man is given primary, the word is responsibility, primary responsibility for their shared mission and for the well-being of his wife. Um, the man is given primary responsibility for their shared mission and for the well-being of his life. Um, it's, uh, um, it's here where the com- we talk about complementarians, which we, this church lands there, and egalitarians. This is kind of where those two places diverge. An egalitarian perspective doesn't see any distinctions um, in, in Adam's role until after the fall. Um, when it's told that he's, he's going to rule um, part of the curse, um, whereas complementarians see that it actually shows up before that. So um, I want to give three indicators here in the text that the man was given primary responsibility for the mission as well as the well-being of the woman. So the first one is he's given the task of naming. Um, given the task of naming. It doesn't sound very important. Um, think about when you, if those of you are married, naming your child, um, everybody, had, everybody gets a say, right? Um, even people that you don't want to give their opinion about it. But um, the, uh, he's given the primary task of naming. Like I said, it doesn't sound important to us, but to the original readers, it would have stood out to them. They would have noticed. Because what happens is God creates each day, and he names each day. He talks about what he's doing. He names them. And then as he creates man, then he gives man that same role. He says, now I want you to do that. And he, he gives... Adam, the man, at this point, the same, the same um, task to do, and he brings all the animals. Remember, we looked at this last week. He brings the animals, and, and Adam names them. Because remember, Adam was given dominion, it says, over the creation. God, that's part of the mandate. And part of the dominion over creation is he names the animals. It's part of that. It shows that he has, um, he has this, this place of dominion and authority over them. And then lastly, after, as, after the woman is made, he names her as well which is a place of responsibility that he takes. Um, so this issue of, of, of naming. Um, the second um, indication that he holds primary responsibility is that he's created first. Um, again, and by the way, this, uh, this one and the next one um, have a much stronger weight to it because both of them get talked about in the New Testament. Um, again, we, we say big deal, who cares who gets created first, right? Um, but again, to the readers, it would have meant everything. Um, would have meant everything. So a couple things we learned about this. So we'll walk through this and see what it looks like. Um, number one, it's interesting that the cultural mandate, this mandate in Genesis that they end up sharing, is first given, <coughs> sorry, given to Adam. Um, you can read that in first chapter, the first two chapters there. Um, it does not mean he's the one to carry it out. As a matter of fact, we discover very quickly 
that he is unable to carry out the mandate on his own. And so then God says, wants him to get that, and then he creates the woman to bring it. But he's given the mandate while he is still alone. And uh, he's responsible um, to make sure it happens. It's uh, his, uh, a temporary dominion over creation before the woman is made. And then secondly, God gives the regulations first to him. So God, in uh, our text last week, we saw that he creates man, and he tells him to, 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 he can enjoy everything in the garden, and he tells him specifically that you can enjoy everything, but of this one place, you're not to eat from that tree. And this, if you don't, this is what will happen. That's in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. As such, he's not only given the responsibility to communicate this to the woman, but he's to be a gateway against violating its regulations. So the idea here is God creates man, and he places him in the garden, it says, and he begins to step into this mandate of having dominion over the garden. And um, it's his alone, which he can't do it, which he soon discovers. And then also, once, while he's in that place alone, God gives him the regulations. This is how the community is going to work. And this is what you're to do, and this is what you are not to do. And Adam is, um, is given that responsibility. He's given those instructions. He carries the weight of that. The fact that he is created first is the, the basis for his contribution, being that he is primarily responsible for the mission and the well-being of his wife. We will look at this in, um, in two weeks, so I'm not going to... Look at it closely, but if you were if you were to read in First Corinthians eleven and First Timothy two, both are passages that we're going to look at in detail in two weeks. Um, in both those places, we think, what does it really matter that he was created first? In both those places, Paul uses the creation order as the basis for what he instructs about men and women in the church. Um, like I said, we'll look closely at those in two weeks. But for today, just be aware that Paul uses. The fact that man was created first as the basis for instructions about order, ordered relationships between men and women in the church. And so it may seem irrelevant to us, um, but the scriptures themselves say that it matters, which means that God had a purpose in what he did and what was behind it um, in creating Adam first. The third indicator that Adam's unique, of Adam's unique role is seen in chapter 3. Um, and Mary read a portion of that for us tonight. And again, this one is supported in the New Testament. And the third indicator is that Adam, the man, is held responsible for the fall. The man is held responsible um, for the fall. After the man and woman's sin, it, it tells us, um, that God arrives, and who does he speak to? Speaks to the man. It goes to him first. Um, the New Testament scriptures let us know that it says that um, in, in one of the sections, Paul talks about the woman being deceived. Um, that is not a statement about all women. It's a statement about what happened in the garden. And in the garden, Eve was deceived, we're told. Adam, on the other hand, was not um, he knew what he was doing. He chose something that God had said not to do. Genesis 3.17 tells us that he listened to his wife, which, by the way, isn't a bad thing here. Um, but in this case, God says it's, God instructs that this was a mistake. Genesis 3.17, he's, he's held accountable. He says because he listened to his wife rather than what? 
listening to God. And the word listening there is he, he heeded her. As she made a choice, he heeded that, and he laid aside, he stepped um, aside from his place of holding responsibility, of being a gateway for doing the right thing, and he failed to care for her well-being. So how do we know that the man here has a distinct role? Um, because God holds him responsible. And a little bit more about that. As stated, God directs his inquiry to Adam. It's like... Um, I remember the first time my, my oldest brother, um, my parents went away for the evening and we didn't have a babysitter because my brother was old enough to be, in, be the babysitter. And um, we broke a picture window. We were wrestling, <laughs> um, this huge picture window. And um, so when my parents came home, what do you think they did? They went to my brother and says, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Why? Because he was responsible. He didn't actually do it. Um, my sister and I did it. But he was responsible. Um, illustration's not the best one. Um, anyways, they go to the oldest. What happened here? Um, but God goes to Adam first. He goes, he's seeking him out. Adam, where are you? Where are you? And he asks him what happened. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, and Romans 5, verses 12 through 21 are just two of the places that we get have clearly stated that sin came into the world by, and, and ladies, this is good news, it's, not, it's by men. It says Adam, the sin came through Adam. And I don't, I don't get all that, how does it all work, and, and how's, but that's what we stated, that it came through Adam himself. As a matter of fact, the, the death sentence um, that God um, says in Genesis 3, when he, when he lays out the, this, the consequence of sin, he says, to dust you will return. He speaks that to Adam. Even though the consequences we all suffer from, Adam is the one who held the burden for it. The fact that he is held responsible for the sin shows that it, it was his unique contribution to keep them focused on the mission, to care for the well-being of his wife, and to put up a gateway of obedience in the garden, and he failed to do so. The man was commissioned with the responsibility to make sure that the mandate, the mission, was carried out by both the man and the woman, and he was also commissioned with the responsibility to communicate and to guard God's commands. And he failed. He failed to do so. We'll see this in detail next week, but let me just read this. Paul understands the relationship between the husband and the wife. We'll see this, as I said, next week to be an analogy of the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is the head of the church and therefore takes the highest level of responsibility for its well-being, which is really good news for us. He actually believes that he is responsible for us to flourish and steps into our lives to do that. Adam, too, is seen as Eve's head in the New Testament by being responsible at the highest level for the well-being of his bride. And so here we have sameness in the garden. We have a shared mission, a shared mandate, a shared likeness, an image, a shared value, but both are also called to make unique contributions without which everything begins to unravel. Just a, a word of note about that. The distinct contributions we're talking about, as we'll see in the next two weeks, are played out in the church, and they're played out in the, the home. 
Um, the, the scriptures don't talk about that outside of those two places. Um, so we're going to keep them into the, those two contexts. So this third indicator um, that Adam had a unique role of primary responsibility is shown the fact that he was held responsible, um, which is why the second Adam had to come and rescue us. So what did sin do? We've, we've seen a little bit here of um, how they're the same, the, the woman's unique contribution as this helper, this idea of being a helper, and then the, the man's unique contribution of taking primary responsibility. Well, what did sin do? Well, let me read from Genesis 3. I'm going to begin with verse 16. And he's already begun to talk about the consequences. He says to the woman, he's already spoken to the, the, the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles I shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground from out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, um, we looked at this a little while back, this, the, the wonder of what happened, the wonder of Genesis 1 and 2, what they experienced there, the, um, the absolute transparency in their lives between themselves, seeing their own heart, their communication with the other, the, the presence of God, which... Um, was unhindered by anything. It's absolutely incredible. How did it, what, what did it feel like when sin entered and suddenly there was just this cloud that just came down and was so marked that immediately says they felt shame. Um, something happened. And then to hear these verses, these words of God to them, this is, this is what's happened. This is what it's going to look like, and this is what sin has done to this incredible plan that I've made. So a quick survey of chapter 3. We have Satan who comes in, disguised as a serpent, which, by the way, was part of creation, right? And then Satan addresses himself to the woman in, in those earlier verses. Um, apparently, because it says she gave the fruit to, for him, that the man to eat as well, apparently Adam is nearby, um, Standing unengaged, which men do a lot. And she violates God's command and she eats. And it's after this that the man eats um, and then sin enters and a cloud comes over everything. It's interesting, and we were probably saying, wait, um, this is not a sure thing. It's interesting that when she eats, we, we don't, they don't, there's nothing about, oh, they've suddenly felt the shame. It's when Adam eats that it hits. And you kind of wonder, if Adam had, had done the right thing, goes, we're not, we're not going this route, whether that would have actually covered what had actually happened. They would have not found themselves at the place they were at. Don't know. But. And then God seeks them out, and he directs his inquiry to the man, and then the consequences are laid out. This is what sin is going to produce in you and in the people in the world. And then this chapter closes with a picture of grace. 
So what do we learn about men and women in this particular narrative at the end here, chapter 3? First of all, the enemy, as we talked about last week, always seeks to diminish a manifestation of the image of God in the world. He creates the man and the woman, both in his image, both unique, both displaying some of the same and some of the different unique aspects of God's image. Together, they best display the image of God of the world. And the enemy hates that. So he does not want the image to get displayed, so he attacks it. And he does so by pushing against God's order of things. God says, this is what it looks like. So what does the enemy do? He pushes back against that. He usually, usually takes something that God did and he does something else with it. He's, he's not creative. He never comes up with his own ideas. He pushes against God's order and he gets us to do the same. Adam, who's the gatekeeper, holds primary responsibility. So what does Satan do? He skips Adam and he speaks directly to the woman first, which, which the readers are going, what, that shouldn't happen. He should have spoken, be speaking to Adam here. But he doesn't. He bypasses the way God has done things. And Adam, who has the primary responsibility as gatekeeper, he bypasses him, and he speaks directly to the woman. And secondly, we see that the man, man fails to keep the mission in front of them. He fails to exercise dominion over creation, the serpent, and he fails to care for the well-being of the woman. The, the serpent is, was part of the creation. He's supposed to exercise dominion over that to speak out against that, to, to address it, and he doesn't do it. And they both fail in their God-ordained contributions. And that begins to explain the damage done. See, the enemy comes along and he attacks what they're uniquely supposed to bring. And then the damage of sin that God lays out has to do with that very thing. We'll see it here. The God-ordained roles, the contributions before sin were perfect. They're, they weren't having arguments about who gets, who's the helper and who has primary responsibility. This just, it worked. It was this way God made it, and there's this freedom there. There's perfect unity and perfect harmony, and the enemy hates that and still does. So he subverts their roles is what he does. And the result of sin strikes at the very heart of those roles. One author says this, the temptation represents step-by-step step the total reversal of God's created order of relationships. The man is to submit to the command of God, and the woman is to accept the leadership of the man. Together they are to have authority over the creatures, but all this gets turned on its head. Instead, the creature leads the woman, the woman leads the man, and together they disobey God. Put another way, the woman listens to the creature, the man listens to the woman, and neither of them listens to God. In Genesis 3, after that, lists a number of consequences, but verse 16 I just want to pay attention to because it speaks into the subject about our unique contributions, and it's the one that people discuss the most. Verse 16, he says, Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, this is not a statement about how things um, should be, um, but it's a, it's, it's a statement about this is what it looks like in relationships when we let sin reign amongst us. There's a lot written about exactly what this means, um, but we actually, God gives us in the text a very, very clear indication of exactly what it means. And the key words here are desire that people talk about, 
What does it mean that her desire is for her husband? Um, and what does it mean by that he will rule over her? In Genesis chapter 4 through 7, as Cain is feeling tempted and angry and, and um, is going down a bad path, in that Genesis 4, God meets him and speaks to him. And he says this in verse 4, verse 7. He says, Sin, Cain, is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The exact same Hebrew words are used, desire and rule, which is not surprising that the consequence of sin or this issue of the, the woman's desire will be for her husband and he's going to rule. And what happens in the very next chapter, this, this first terrible thing that happens is murder. And at the heart of it are this, these issues of desire and ruling. He used the same words, the same two Hebrew words. Scott McKnight, who's a well-known egalitarian scholar, um, states it correctly. He says, Genesis 3.18 it's a prediction of the fallen desire of fallen women and fallen men in a fallen condition in a fallen world. Fallen women yearn to dominate the man. Fallen men yearn to dominate the women. The desire to dominate or control, however you want to use that, is a broken desire. And it speaks of fallen humans seeking to control other people. Another writer says this, it means a desire to break the relationship of equality and turn it into a relationship of servitude and domination. A sinful husband will try to be a tyrant over his wife, or even if not a tyrant, just exercising control in ungodly ways. Far from being a reign of co-equals over God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute, each party trying to rule the other. And to love and to cherish turns into this dominating and controlling relationship that happens between them. So these words, desire, to they, basically what happens is um, God says part of what sin's going to do, it's, it messes things up in your, your unique contributions. And rather than coming alongside like God does to help, it says the result will be a tendency to want to control, to control. And the husband, rather than taking primary responsibility like Christ does in loving and sacrificing and giving his life and caring for and cherishing begins to rule, and the word there is a, is a negative rule. It's, this, it's the, kind of, the kind of ruling over that we see all over in the world today, and it's so ugly, and it's not what God intended. So the woman gives up her contribution of helping and instead seeks to control, and the man's contribution to lead becomes corrupted, and it gets corrupted into all the bad things that we see done in the name of leading, particularly by men. So what does the enemy attack? He attacks God's created order. And it's brought this chaos, and it continues today. We're going to end with that. Isn't that a great spot to end? Not quite actually going to bring the worship team up there. It's actually not the last word. What we just saw and what happens and the, the playing out of, of this, the corruption in our relationships with each other um, is not the last word. Is there any good news? And the answer to that is, is an absolute yes. Because remember we said that, what is God committed to? He's committed to us, his people. In Christ, we are restored into relationship with God, into a relationship with ourselves, and restored to relationship with one another. And he desires to bring us back into being co-workers in his kingdom, each without distortion, bringing our unique, essential, and indispensable contributions to his mission.
It's interesting, at the end of Genesis 3, we get this picture of redemption and restoration, because what does God do? He says he made clothing for them from the skins of animals. Um, he covers them. Um, one of the questions is, so where did the skins come from? And most writers think that there was a sacrifice. God had to had had kill an animal to get the skins, which is a picture of the coming day when Christ would give his life in order to clothe us with his righteousness. God sets out in a divine plan, which the rest of the word lays out for us, restore and redeem. And it culminates in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus in order to restore us again, to be a community of people the way we were first designed for us to be. Um, so that all that junk, all those consequences that happened after sin can begin to be reversed. And we're still in that process watching that today as God does a work in us. We have a table here, and if you're visiting, we have one in the, on the side as well. Um, we gather as one body around the table, and we celebrate every single week that we have life and redemption and rescue and restoration to bring us back together with one another and with him. 1 Corinthians 10 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation together in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Um, we come up as we're singing. We break off the bread. If you know the Lord today, the table is open to you, and we dip it in the cup. And remember um, the God who restores, the God who redeems, the God who gives us life again. Lord, thank you for the bread and the cup in the midst of such a, a painful story that we all know the consequences of in our own lives, and we still see it all around us. Thank you for the table and reminder that you came into the middle of it and you gave your life. And in salvation, you've incredibly have clothed us with the righteousness of Christ and made us beautiful in your sight and have called us into unity with each other. So as we take it tonight and as we sing, Lord, we uh, give up our hearts to you as, as hearts of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.